0: Here's hoping that the fourth time, maybe this is the fifth time, is the charm. If this doesn't work, I'm going to consider it a sign from the universe, if not from God, and call it off until next week. I am recording in sunny Florida. You can probably hear the sunshine. It's so bright. You probably, you definitely will hear the birds in the background, and I'm terribly sorry for that. I mean, nobody should have to listen to that. But... In this case, if you're going to listen to these reflections. which I wouldn't blame you if you didn't, but know that I've worked really hard to get these out. So you'd be doing me a favor if you did. And besides, you should feel sorry for me for having to record it in in such a bright, sunshiny place. All right, enough preamble. Here we go. As always, I want to try to be careful not to... Yeah, I'm not going to go back and start again. Sorry for the notification. I thought I'd turn those off. No matter how bad this goes. Well, I shouldn't say no matter how bad it goes. but I'm going to try not to start over. Right? So, here we go. it again. As I've been saying for the last few weeks, I don't want to tie the connections too tightly. Relate the text so, so thematically that there's not room for you to to take these reflections in the directions you want you want to take them i do think there's a pretty dominant theme in the text for this week as we've come to the last week of epiphany so in some ways we are we're returning to the theme of divine encounter transfiguration seeing god in his glory the light of god being revealed to the nations and we're preparing to take that promise into lent into the darkness of Lent into the wilderness of Lent. And this theme, which again is is not just, doesn't just simply mark epiphany, I mean it marks all of scripture, that when God's glory comes, it's bewildering, disappointing, unsettling, overwhelming, it's always more and in some ways other than what we expected. And, of course, the Incarnation is the the fullest possible realization of that paradox. Jesus is the fullness of God revealed. Jesus is the the revelation of God's life. And sometimes we talk, and not entirely without reason, but we, we talk as if the Incarnation was the hiding of God's glory in the life of Jesus. But that's not quite right. Jesus' life is the disclosing, the unveiling of God's life. It only seems inglorious to us because we are veiled. Jesus is not a veiled revelation, whatever that would mean. Jesus is a revelatory unveiling that reveals our veiledness, the ways in which we are hiding because we are estranged from ourselves in being estranged from God and being estranged from one another. So, to the texts. The Old Testament text is Exodus 34, which opens with this the scene of Moses descending from the mountain. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. He's had this face-to-face encounter with God, this revelatory touch from God and conversation with God. He comes down from the mountain. And as he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke with them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near. So Moses is coming down. This is this kind of archetypal metaphor of having been with God and then descending from that back into quote unquote real life, right? So Moses is coming down from the experience into you know, out of the mystical back into the mundane and he's pregnant with the word like Mary. He's bearing the word of God. He's received the word of God. He's carrying them as he descends. He does not know that his face is shining and this is, This is an integral part, it's essential to the truthfulness of the experience, that he's not yet aware of it. So he's been with God, he's communed with God face to face, his face has lit up because of it, the the face of God has shined upon him, as in the priestly blessing, and because of that his face is shining, but he doesn't know it. So you have a kind of contrast here with Jeremiah, who the prophet of doom, the prophet of lost causes... The prophet of tears, Jeremiah has burning without shining. His, his sense of the word of God is that it's eating him up from within. He, he's, he's engulfed in the flames. The, the, the wrath of God that is within him, a word against the sins of his people, is a word that is devouring him from within. But there's no shining. And with Moses, there's shining, but no burning. He has no no sense that that he is somehow consumed. John the Baptist, of course, will, will Jesus will say of him that he's a burning and a shining light. So it seems to be that John kind of integrates both the shining and the burning. And of course, that's true of Jesus in another way as well. But when Moses and when Moses descends, and Aaron and all the elders see him. They are afraid of him. Now, why are they afraid? I mean, this this recurs throughout Scripture that when God is revealed, and this can be in the prophet, this can be in some kind of raw theophany, this can be through an angelic mediator, fear is is almost always, if not always, the the response, and often followed with "Do not be afraid, fear not." So, why why are they afraid, and why why are we not? Afraid? Why does this seem like such a puzzling response to us? I, I think it's, it's easy to, to read this as, as merely a spectacle, as if, you know, Moses comes off the mount, his face is shining, as if it's an oddity, a kind of circus trick or a carnival act. And for people who've been raised on television and movies, it's it's easy to see this scene play out like a scene in a movie and to see Moses face shining as a kind of yeah, like like a trick or like uh, something paranormal. But I, I think. It's clearly more than that, that Aaron and the elders realize that this is a numinous encounter. It's not merely a, a paranormal one They're They're encountering the otherness of God in ways that they, they can't name, and they are afraid. And Moses calls them near, which recalls what Joseph does with his brothers, right? Moses recognizes their fear, and strikingly, Moses is not made afraid by their fear of him. And I, I think this is this is absolutely critical to everything else that's going to play out in the text this week. That Moses is not aware that he is shining. When he comes aware that he's shining, it's by their fear of him. And yet, at least initially, he doesn't, he doesn't feel that fear of himself. He's not afraid of himself, even though they're afraid of him. He calls them close. He calls them close. And that, that invitation to come near, of course, is, is the act of God already extended him, right? Back at the beginning of this book, Exodus 3 and 4, Moses comes to the burning bush, not, not simply the shining one, although he sees it. But the burning bush that is not consumed, he's called close to it. He's called close to it. And, and now he himself has become like that. He is a, sh- a light shining in the wilderness, right? And he's coming to them now rather than them turning aside to him. And for a while at least he holds true to the character of the god who's been revealed to him but as you'll see as as the story plays out moses begins to lose his way as he's aware the the longer he is aware of himself as shining and aware of their fear of him the more he re- reverts to the fear he had when he encountered god at the bush that self-doubt that was eating him up when he was in the wilderness there at the burning bush at the beginning of, of Exodus. One more thing to point out here before before we finish reading the text. They, they come to him in waves. So Aaron and the Israelite elders see him first. Well, all of Israel is afraid. But elder the elders and Aaron come close first. And then all the Israelites come near. So there's this way in which Aaron takes the lead. The elders come with him. And then the whole people of God drawn near, which I think is an indication of like the the role of an elder, right? Is to to move into the light of God against the grain of our fear so that all the people can be brought near. When Moses, back to the text, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And when he came out, And told the Israelites what he he had been commanded. The Israelites would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining. And Moses would put the veil on his face again, until he went in to speak with with him, with God. So what you have here is is a kind of pattern that develops. So after Moses has been on the mountain, now at the foot of the mountain, as he goes into the presence of God and out, speaking on God's behalf and living among the people, a kind of pattern, a cycle develops in which while he's with God, he's unmasked, unveiled. He comes out from the presence of God to face the people. And while he's facing the people, he's unveiled. His face is shining, and they see his face shining, and they know his face is shining because the face of the Lord has shone upon him. But then, in the aftermath, before he turns back to the Lord, while he is with the people in that intervening time, so not literally, but metaphorically, in the Monday to Saturday time between the Sunday experiences, Moses veils himself. And the text says nothing about why. It says nothing about what motivates him, what leads him to do this, but he does veil himself. And that gap, that lack of explanation, which we can't help but ask, why is he veiling himself? The text doesn't supply an answer. It comes in Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians 3. So let's turn to the the New Testament reading. I'm not going to do a lot here with what's happening in 2 Corinthians, except to say Paul is writing to a church that he founded in Corinth that at one time looked to him as... Their apostle, as their father in the faith, as their their leader in the. Uh, I hate the term leader just because it's such a bland term now. But uh, he was the face of God for them, the voice of God. The this apostle, father, instructor, master, rabbi, and As time goes by, more and more voices, including a a group from Jerusalem, from the church in Jerusalem, more and more voices kind of make themselves heard in this community. And the suggestion is that Paul doesn't really have the whole truth. And what plays out over time is that Paul loses a popularity contest. So these, what he calls super apostles, mockingly called super apostles, who come from the church in Jerusalem, they have letters of recommendation. They at least claim to perform more miracles. They're more polished speakers. They receive patronage from the Corinthian churches. In all, all of these ways, they, they turn out to be more impressive than Paul. And Paul loses the, the popularity contest, and the church turns from him to these other apostles, to these super apostles, who he says are, are not truly their fathers, not truly their apostles. So, what we have in Second Corinthians then is a series of arguments in which Paul is trying to win back the Corinthians to the faith that he has entrusted to them, to the call that he shares with them. And you see a whole range of emotions from Paul, from grief to fury, confusion, deep, deep compassion. There's a, there's a a whole range of responses, but 2 Corinthians 3, he has opened this passage, opened this chapter, what we have is chapter 3, with, you are our letter, we don't need letters of recommendation, you are our letter, and then he moves down to make this argument that he and his ministry team are not like Moses, which calls up the text we've just read, so let me read this, this is 2 Corinthians 3, since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. Not like Moses, we act with great boldness. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the children of Israel or the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. I'll, I'll come back and finish the reading in just a moment. But, but notice that he, Paul has kind of inferred from Exodus Moses' motive, at least some aspect of his motive. And that is, he says Moses veiled his face to keep Israel from gazing at the end of the glory. Now, Paul stops short of, of saying more. He doesn't psychologize Moses. But we, we, we can, perhaps tentatively, fill in the gaps here, that Moses does not want to lose face, facing Israel, having faced God. He does not want to lose face face with Israel. And that that could be because he's protecting himself. He doesn't want them to see that his face is the kind of face that doesn't retain the glory, that the shining fades from him, that the, the glory fades. Perhaps he's afraid that this will suggest to them... That he is too weak to to be a reservoir for the light of God. That he that he is, and, and of course, in the following chapter, we Paul takes up that notion of having the light of God treasures in earthen vessels, right? So Paul seems to to kind of suggest this notion of that Moses is afraid of his own humanity, and his incapacity, his weaknesses. And because of his weakness, he, he's afraid that Israel will see his weakness and, and doubt him. But I think it might also be that, it might be that and also that Moses is trying to manage God's image, right? So he doesn't want God to lose face with Israel. He doesn't want Israel to see that God's glory is a glory that fades, right? That it is a glory that does not does not abide. And it might be that he doesn't want Israel to lose faith in the sight of the nations. And, and probably, as you can tell, I think probably it's it's some aspect of all three of these. There is self-preservation. Moses does not want to lose faith with Israel. But it isn't mere ego, right, that's driving him. It is a concern that if 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 he loses face with them, they might lose faith in God, and so he's protecting his own image in hopes of protecting their confidence in the God he is imaging. And so it's it's easy to understand how how that mistake might be made, and I I, I don't think any leader any conscientious leader any any pastor or preacher or priest or bishop or deacon or teacher or parent anyone mentor anyone in any kind of role of responsibility can can live long without feeling some of that pressure of wanting not wanting to betray the trust of others and doing what you can to make it so that their trust in you uh, stabilizes their trust in God. But of course, at the end of the day, that that won't hold. That won't hold. And Paul is is insisting to the Corinthians that he and his ministry team are not like Moses. They are bold. And what he means by boldness here is we we allow you to see our humanity. We are not going to manage our image. Again, remember, Paul has lost the popularity contest with these super apostles, with these... Men who've come up from a, from the church in Jerusalem with credentials, they've come up performing miracles, they've come up with more persuasive sermons, their, their speech is more polished, their presence is more demanding, and Paul's kind of conceding the point. Yes, they are more impressive than I am, but they're more impressive than I am because they are projecting an image, and I'm not protecting mine. I'm not projecting an image, and I'm not protecting my image. I'm not veiling myself in the way that Moses did, and by implication, in the ways that these super apostles are doing. Instead, he says, when we, when we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And, of course, as, it, as people shaped in and around American evangelicalism, we can't help but hear freedom as political freedom, freedom to exercise my individual rights, Freedom from constraints imposed on me by the government and imposed on me by my neighbors. But of, of course, Paul has no such notion. And what he means here is the freedom to be human, the freedom not to veil, the freedom not to manage his image, the freedom to lose face. So the, the boldness he's talking about here is a boldness to accept shame with Christ, to be shamed with Christ for the way that he's to be a fool with Christ and on Christ's behalf, to be fooled with Christ. And, and so he has this freedom from the rules of the game, so to speak, freedom from the shame culture that he's moving in and through. And he's essentially saying, I, I'm not bound to... And, and my ministry team, my team and I, we're not bound to save face for you or to save our face or to save God's face for you. Instead, all of us with unveiled faces are seeing the glory of the Lord. The Lord's face is not veiled. Our faces are not veiled. And in that way, there's a there's a reflection of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, in our face as we face Jesus. And, and therefore, all of us are being transfigured into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And as we are, by God's mercy, engaged in that ministry, we do not lose heart. Even though we, of course, recognize our weaknesses as Moses recognized his, we do not lose heart as Moses was tempted to do. We, we simply trust that we do not have anything to hide. We've renounced the shameful things that one hides. And so here he's, this is a complex point he's making, but he's, he's, he's telling them, You are ashamed of us, but the fact is, there is nothing for us to hide, and you are hiding yourself from us, ashamed of us, because we're not as impressive. We don't come off as polished. We don't shine in the way you want us to shine, and because we don't shine in the way you want us to shine, you shun us, but the fact is, we've done nothing shameful. There's nothing we've done to be ashamed of. We just, we are who we are, and... God is comfortable being with us as we are. He doesn't veil his face in front of us. God is not in, involved in in shaming us. God is not, in, in the language of Hebrews, God is not ashamed to be numbered with us, to be, to be called one of us. And so we are not going to practice cunning. We're not going to falsify God's word. We're going to proclaim the gospel and, and live the gospel in ways that are true to Jesus himself, right? And Jesus did not shine in the way that it was expected right he is the light of the world he's the one who enlightens everyone who comes into the world and yet he when he comes to his own because he doesn't shine in the way they expect him to they don't know to receive him they don't recognize him as such but that is precisely um god's glory so with that said let's come to the gospel Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Of course, in Luke, this is a major theme, Jesus' life of prayer, prayer with the disciples, prayer in the presence of the disciples. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. So again, calling back the story in Exodus. And his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure. Now, a lot which I'm sure you've already thought about, but a lot here to unpack in terms of Moses and Elijah are archetypal figures of prophecy in Israel's history. But their lives in in at least partial failure, they they if not entirely disobedient, they're largely unfaithful. And their lives end under under a question mark. And Moses, of course, is not allowed to see the promised land. I mean, he's allowed to see it. He's not allowed to enter it. And yet here he is in the promised land. And what's being suggested, among other things, is that Jesus and his exodus, that they're talking with him about his departure, which he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. His exodus is bringing them into their own fulfillment that they had not realized in their lifetime. So in a way, their intercessory work, dead in the Lord, having died, even though not fully faithful, they die in the Lord. And because of that, they enter into the intercession that is taken up into Christ's fulfilling work. And so they're kind of brought into a salvation they gave witness to, but were not able to accomplish, not able to achieve. And so they're talking with Christ about his exodus, and Peter and, and the others are weighed down with sleep. Again, this is not natural sleep. This is not, you know, they they'd missed a, a few nights of their routine. It's that the glory has weighed them down. Their consciousness is overwhelmed. But they fight through it. They stay awake. They see his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving, Peter says to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, of course, the most familiar reading of this is that Peter is making the mistake of thinking that Jesus is just one more of the prophets, that he's one of the prophets alongside Moses and Elijah. And maybe, maybe that's true. But I'm not sure because he does, the text does say they saw his glory and the two men so it's as if they, the, the witnesses Peter, John, John, and James, they recognize Jesus is glorious in a way that Moses and Elijah are not, and therefore, one, one more note here, they they also see that Moses and Elijah there to talk about Jesus' work, right? So they recognize that. Moses and Elijah have come to talk with Jesus about what he has to do, and they might even be overhearing it. We don't know. They see his glory, and we're told that Moses and Elijah are talking with him, but only that they see them talking, so we don't know if they hear what Moses and Elijah are saying, but I mean, they know the text as well as you and I do, and so they can surely put two and two together, even under the conditions of this ecstatic experience. So I, I don't think it's that Peter and the others think, are, are failing to recognize Jesus' distinctness, his, his uniqueness. I think it's instead that Peter is speaking up out of fear, the same fear that Moses feels, the same fear that Paul fe- felt and then rejected. And that is, Peter has come aware of himself in this moment and is protecting James and John, and when he speaks, he's speaking without, without knowing what he's saying, right, and, and it's a, another way of doing what, in Matthew 16, Jesus calls satanic, it's trying to keep Jesus, not intentionally, not intentionally, but still purposefully, trying to keep Jesus from carrying out his exodus, let us make three dwellings, meaning you don't have to make your exodus, we can stay here. We can stay here. We, we don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to be betrayed. You don't have to be killed. You don't have to be buried. We, we can we can find some other way around. And, of course, this is the satanic temptation, right, that God's will can be fulfilled some other way, some way that preserves your your life as you want it, as you've known it. And while he's saying this, the cloud descends and overshadows them, and they are terrified. So what's striking here is that they, at least in Luke's telling, they don't seem to be terrified by the light. They're terrified by the darkness. They're terrified by the cloud. And when the cloud comes, and they're enveloped in it, wrapped up in it, they hear the voice, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. So now we get a kind of shifting from seeing to listening. Don't don't look at the light. Listen to what is being said. When the voice speaks, Jesus is found alone, and they keep silent. And they tell no one about any of the things they had seen. And again, I don't want to overstress the seeing-hearing difference, but I think there's something there to to attend to, at least carefully. So, just, just a note here about, I mean, this is the season of Epiphany, but it's the last step in this season as we move toward Lent. And what we what we need to hear here, I think, is this the need for a kind of divine darkness. So there's there's a kind of darkness what we might call the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of, of simply not knowing, the darkness of the the babe in the womb. There's the darkness of deception where we are misled by the enemy. But then I think there is a darkness of revelation that. Is necessary. It's closely related to the dark night of the soul that Saint John of the Cross talks about. It's not always tied to deep suffering, although I think it almost certainly it usually is, and almost certainly will eventually lead there, because God is present to those who are suffering. As as you've probably heard me say before, I don't think God wants us to suffer, but God wants us to be with those who are suffering, and He wants suffering to go through us. He doesn't want us to go through it, but He wants it to go through us. For the sake of those who are who are neglected, God-forsaken, broken by the way the world works, and so on. So, what's happening here is that they see the light, they see Jesus' glory, but it isn't, it doesn't change them. It, it isn't, you know. There's that promise in 1 John that we will be like Him when we see Him as He is. So, there's a way of Jesus being seen that is transfiguring for us. He's not only transfigured in front of us, but we are transfigured by His appearance. But that isn't what this is, right? In Luke's telling, they see Jesus, and they're not transfigured. They remain caught in their worldliness, in their fleshliness. And Peter speaks out of that place of fear that that seems to have overtaken Moses. And and Peter wants to veil the glory by inhibiting the work of Jesus, the move of Jesus to his exodus, to to the cross. So the text continues. Jesus comes down from the mountain. And a great crowd meets him. So we've got a kind of reenactment of what happens with Moses. Jesus descends, but he's not shining. Not, Not in the way that the disciples had just witnessed on the mountain. And not in a way that Moses did when Aaron and the elders of Israel saw him. Just then a man from the crowd shouts, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. Suddenly a spirit seizes him and all at once he shrieks. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him and he will scarcely leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy and gave him back to his father and all were astonished or astounded at the greatness of God so a few quick comments first i think there's a there's a fundamental difference here between being astounded at the greatness of God and the silence the disciples keep when they come off the mountain so there's a there's a kind of astonishment being astonished as the king james had it that that hardens us right so you notice in the in the New Testament reading, Paul says that they they see Moses, but because he's because he veils himself, they are hardened. So there's a kind of experience of the truth, a kind of experience of the saint and the holy, the the of the scriptures, of the prophetic, of the miracle, a kind of brushing up against God's presence and act in the world that. Astonishes us, but leaves us hardened. It turns us into stones. It doesn't grind us so that we become bread. It, it makes us stones. And of course, that has to do not with the way God is revealed, but with the way we receive it, like how we welcome or do not welcome that revelation. And I, I think here, and perhaps I'm overreading, but I think there's a, a kind of astonishment in the crowd that shows. They're caught up in the spectacle of the miracle. They don't see what's there to be seen. They're they're looking for a kind of shining, a kind of polish that God is simply uninterested in and, and opposed to, not only uninterested in, but out and out, opposed to. The disciples, though, come off the mountain keeping a kind of silence that's pregnant, like Moses coming off the mountain is pregnant with the word of God. And that's a contemplative Silence, where they're not hardened, but they're broken open, and I, I think everything depends right on on what happens in the aftermath of the experience. Right? It's not the miracle. It's not the prophetic word. It's not the revelatory insight into scripture. It's not the dream. It, it's it's not the mystical catching up. Everything depends on what happens in the aftermath. And are we hardened? into a kind of astonishment that seems pious, but in fact doesn't alter us in any deep way? Or are we keeping a kind of silence that's pregnant with the word that's going to that's going to transform the way we live in the world that actually alters how we care for our neighbor? So then notice Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit. Right? And I'd love to kind of explore, and I, I will at some point do, some reflections on the way evil works in the world, but this, this sense of uncleanness, meaning not, not just ritually making the boy ritually impure, although, of course, that's some of what's intended, but this way in which it muddies the boy's life and muddies the life of those who care for him and muddies the life of the community around him. Right? It, it makes it so that there's, there's something diseased, something off-putting, foul, About it. And that, I think, suggests that when Jesus responds, You faithless and perverse generation, at least in Luke, he's not only rebuking the disciples, he's also rebuking the man, the man who brings his boy to him. Now, we have to be careful here because you you have to read it alongside other Gospels and you'll see differences, of course. But at least it's possible that. Luke wants us to ask, why is this man, this father, approaching Jesus the way that he is? Now, I think at the end of the day, this is a rebuke of the disciples. The, the disciples are the ones who are faithless and perverse. But it's possible that the man is trying to force Jesus' hand by making him lose face, right? by shouting, I begged your disciples to cast him out, and they could not. It may be that this father is trying to use a public forum to leverage Jesus into doing something he thinks Jesus would otherwise be reluctant to do. And he he thinks, or perhaps, again, this is a tentative read, but perhaps he thinks that if he could shame Jesus or put Jesus in this position, which if he doesn't do a miracle, he will be shamed, that Jesus will then be more likely to act. So again, it it, at least to me suggests uh, a context of a of a confrontation over shame. Will you you save face or not? And Jesus' response, you faithless and perverse generation, it's not an accusation. I mean, this is not Jesus lashing out in anger as Moses lashes out and strikes the rock at the end of his life. This is not even Jesus lashing out in anger as we see Paul doing in 2 Corinthians where he threatens to come with a rod and beat the Corinthians rhetorically. This, This is a revelation. You are twisted at the source of your being, the source that is faith, which is the opening of your life to the life of God. That Right at the depths of your being, at the, at the center, at the inmost centermost source of your soul, you are meant to live in faith. You're meant to be opened up to God so that the life of God that is your light, that is your joy, can flow into you and through you to your neighbors. But it's twisted. It's perverted. It's, it's, it's crimped like a, like a hose that's been, that's been bent so that the water cannot flow. And that is leaving this boy in his uncleanness, right? Like the water cannot wash the filth away from this boy. You should, this boy should never have been left in this place. Not, not just by the disciples, but by his father. By the community in which the father and the disciples lived. This boy should not have been left at the mercy of this demon that is convulsing him, dashing him to the ground. But he is, and he is because of our lack of faith. And I I think the critical point here is, is to recognize that faith is not a way of naming our belief in God or our trust in God as if God is looking for us to believe in him. And, and finding delight in, oh, you really do trust me. Thank you. It's faith here names a way of being oriented to reality and the reality of God's goodness. And when sin twists us, when we are deceived, when we are not in the divine dark, but we're in the demonic, the diabolical dark, then we, we end up, we end up uh, cutting down the flow of the spirit that would bring life and health to those who are around us. And so I want to end I want to end with this that the the disciples do not say anything. That Peter James and John do not say anything here. They've come down from the mountain. They see all of this playing out between Jesus, this Father, this demonized boy, the crowd and the disciples who were there. I think I think it's so wise they don't say anything, Peter, James, and John, at least not yet. I mean, the story will continue as you'll see. But for at least a moment, they hold silence. And I think it's that that prepares us for lit. It's a kind of accepting of the need for the darkness, accepting of the need for seasons of quietness, of, of not saying what occurs to us to say. And giving the word of God that has been seeded into us time to mature, time to grow, time to gestate. And, and that, I think, is, is what the Lenten season is about. It's, it's about the, having the, the time for what God was doing in us on the mountain to take shape. Because what God was doing is never quite what we expected it to be. Or even in reflection, what we thought it was. And so again, without drawing the connections too neatly, I think what we get here is they come to a kind of self-awareness that doesn't make them afraid, but it makes them careful. So if Moses becomes aware, self-aware, and becomes afraid and therefore veils himself, what we need is a kind of awareness that may at least at times make us put our hands over our mouths, but not because we're hiding from God and not because we're hiding from ourselves or hiding from others, not because we're trying to save face, but because we know that that keeping faith sometimes requires waiting on God, not just sometimes, but always, and sometimes more than others, requires patience for the right time to come. So I'll leave you I'll leave you with that thought. Hopefully this worked. If it didn't, well, I don't know that anybody will ever know.